All right, Landon, you want to unpack it? Yes, sir. Good morning, guys. Hey, uh, my name's Landon Dermott. I am uh, I'm the area director of Young Life here in the Roanoke Valley, and uh, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. It's a gift for me to get to be up here this morning, not just because this is a church that I go to, and Caroline, my wife, and I are so grateful to get to raise our brand new daughter, Lindley, here in this amazing church, but also because when I was a high school student, uh, just down the road at Hidden Valley High School, a ministry called Young Life changed my life forever, and uh, I, I work now full-time for Young Life, and uh, I, I really believe with all my heart that Young Life wouldn't have been able to exist if it hadn't been for the support for years and years uh, of Church of the Holy Spirit, keeping it around. And uh, so I, I'm grateful for this church, and it's a gift to be up here this morning. And uh, this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about a wedding, the wedding that Tim just read about, uh, one that took place at Cana in Galilee. Uh, but before we get into it, I'm curious, just by show of hands, who, who has uh, planned a wedding before? Whether it was your own, uh, you know, someone in your family, maybe someone, one of your friends, who, who's planned a wedding, okay? Keep your hands up, keep your, and then we'll add to those if you uh, have been in a wedding before, maybe as a bridesmaid, a groomsman, uh, maybe a flower girl, you know, something, something like that. If you've been in a wedding, okay. And then last but not least, keep your hands raised and then add to those, who has been to a wedding before? Okay, we got a lot of people, yet yeah, whether it was yours or you crashed it, you know, uh, whatever it is, if you've, you know, we've all in some way, shape or form probably been around someone uh, who's, who's had a wedding. We've been to one or been in one or something like that. And, and the funny thing about weddings is, we spend more time planning those days than any other day in the world. At least uh, to my understanding, I can't think of a day that we spend more time planning for. When Caroline and I got engaged, we spent eight months planning for our wedding. And uh, I, I think this is live streaming, so I'll say it again. When Caroline and I got engaged, Caroline spent eight months planning for our wedding day. And it was an amazing day. And weddings are a great celebration where uh, two people join together and become one. But uh, I don't know if it's because there's so much pressure built up around the day, if there's so much excitement, if it's Murphy's Law, if it's irony, but something always goes wrong, right? We know in this story something went awry, but uh, I see a couple smiles in the audience because you probably have a story of uh, your wedding or a wedding you've been to where something went wrong. Whether it's that uh, when the ceremony starts, rain begins to fall and it's an outdoor wedding, or someone's speaking at the wedding and the microphone goes out, or maybe uh, the wedding gets canceled altogether because of a global pandemic. Maybe someone who's important to the wedding, maybe even the bride or the groom, doesn't show up. Maybe the DJ at your wedding grabs the microphone and gives a 25-minute toast that nobody was expecting him to give. Maybe someone passes out during the ceremony. Maybe the mother of the bride takes a picture of the bride and posts it on Facebook before she even walks down the aisle. Or maybe, just maybe, speaking hypothetically here, the groom, the night before his wedding, is setting off some firecrackers with some buddies and he puts one in upside down and it explodes and he takes three of his fingers clean off the night before the wedding. All of those things are true stories. Uh, one of those happened to me. I won't tell you which one, but I will tell you this. I do still have all 10 of my fingers. But something always seems to go awry, and it went wrong here uh, at this wedding. 
And then there's one last thing I want to say before we jump into this passage. I know that, that when I speak about a wedding, when I speak about marriage, a lot of different emotions rise up in this room. For some of us, we might look back in joy at one of the greatest days of our lives. For others, we might look forward longingly or anxiously wondering, will we be married one day? Will that be something? And if it is, who will it be with? For others, we might look back at a wedding with joy, but also with a sadness of someone who's passed away or of a marriage that didn't make it. For others, it might be that you've resolved not to be married and, and the conversation around it is frankly frustrating. And what I would ask is that we could take those emotions and recognize that they're valid, all of the emotions we have towards weddings and, and marriage, and set those aside and take a look at this wedding that happened 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. Because I believe that it'll help us get a glimpse of who Jesus is and who he came to be. So if you've got your Bible, flip it open to John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at that passage this morning. And uh, this is the first miracle that Jesus ever performs. This is the first thing he does. He's, he's born, he spends some time, and then his ministry, his public ministry starts. And this is the first thing he does. And, and at first look, it's really almost a boring or simple or really plain miracle. It happens at Cana in Galilee. It's a village so small that scholars don't even really know exactly where it is today. They know the general area, but it's this small little village. And there's a wedding, and Jesus is there, but he isn't the groom. He isn't a, a groomsman. He isn't the officiant. He isn't even like a, a sibling of anyone getting married. He's just there as a guest. And no one's sick. No one's dying. No gospels proclaimed. Hundreds of people don't come to know Christ. Not even one person turns and follows him. In fact, Jesus doesn't even take credit for the work at the end of the day. But this is his first miracle. This is his grand entrance on the stage. Why? It doesn't even seem like Jesus wants to get involved. Why this? Some scholars would say that uh, this being Jesus' first miracle is evidence that this really happened. That if you were going to take up an account of Jesus' life and try to convince people that he's someone worth following, you wouldn't start with this. A simple save of some embarrassment for a couple who had run out of wine. Why would you start with this? And I believe that's true, and I believe this really happened, and I believe that John saw it all unfold with his own eyes. But I also believe that there's so much more, that under the surface, this miracle looks ordinary, but in reality, it is the quintessence of who Jesus is. That in this miracle, we see who Jesus is and who he came to be. This is more than just a party save. What if this was a grand foreshadowing of Jesus' ministry that has just begun? You see, I believe that scripture is like an ocean in the sense that even the smallest child, even the youngest believer can wade in at the shores of the ocean and splash around and be cooled and refreshed. But yet even the greatest scholars, even the greatest commentators, the greatest people who have studied this word for the longest amount of time have yet to explore its depths fully. So this morning, let's wade in at the shores and perhaps dive out into the deep of who Jesus is and who he came to be in John chapter two. So we pick up the story and it says this, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee and Jesus's mother was also there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. 
Now, I don't want to make light of this when I was talking about this being the first miracle. This was a big deal. Weddings weren't just a five-hour time frame uh, in this time. They happened, and then there was a festival that lasted for three or four days, and the whole town was there. These were a big deal. And this couple has run out of wine, and this would be quite the embarrassment. And Mary, Jesus' mother, comes to Jesus, and she says, they've run out of wine. And she invites him in to this miracle. And Jesus' response is pretty interesting. You know, it says that Mary says they've run out of wine. And uh, I'm going to speak, if there's any, any kids in the room, I, I think that we should try to be like Jesus in everything we do. But I would also love to give you this advice. Don't try this at home, okay? Mary's mother says they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. If you're at home and your mom says, hey, would you unload the dishwasher? And you respond with, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. I promise you, your hour has come. It probably, that's probably the end of the line right there. So I wouldn't try this at home. But, uh, but Jesus reluctantly gets involved. And we'll come back to that statement because I think there's a lot actually underneath it. But Jesus gets involved and Mary steps aside and she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And it says, nearby stood six stone washing jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And the first thing that I want us to notice in this miracle under the surface that Jesus shows about who he is and who he came to be is that Jesus came to be the ultimate ceremonial washing. You see, these stone jars would have been used where, where people would come to this religious ceremony and they'd wash their hands in order to become clean to enter into this religious ceremony. And those jars served to be where people would, would take their dirt and take it off and put it into these jars so that they were clean. And these jars were unassuming and they were attended to by lowly servants. But then at the end of the night, the wine poured out. Why? To cover the embarrassment of this couple. And in the same way, Jesus came in the form of an unassuming man. He wasn't grand in appearance. He was just a human being. And what did he do? He took the dirt of the people so that they could be made clean to enter into the presence of God. And who was he attended to by? A group of rough and rowdy disciples who had been written off by the rest of the world. Only at the end of his life to be poured out his blood like wine and what for? To cover the embarrassment, to cover the shame, to cover the sin of the people. See, Jesus came to be the ultimate ceremonial washing. Can you imagine, I often ask high schoolers this question, what did the miracle actually look like? Was it that when the servants put the water in the stone jars, it immediately turned into wine? Was it that it waited until it got to the brim and then at the snap of a finger, it all turned to wine? Was it that as they put it in the cup, and took it to people that it turned into wine? Or was this like, a, like a, a brand new Gatorade Propel and it looked like water, but it was actually wine? We don't know, but I often wonder, what, what did this miracle actually look like? But you know who got the best seat in the house? It was the servants. The servants watched as this water turned into wine. They watched as water itself blushed as it came into the presence of the living water himself. And if you catch nothing else today, catch this. The people who often get the best view of Jesus's glory are the ones that are close by and the ones that are obedient to his commands. 
And so Jesus tells the servants, draw the water that's now been turned into wine and take it to the master of the banquet. And they do so, and they take it to this master of the banquet. And that role is something that, that we're not really familiar with today. What is the master of the banquet? We don't really have one of those. At least I didn't have one at my wedding. Maybe you guys did. But the master of the banquet in this time was someone who would kind of run the party. Their job was they would, they would bring the food. They would bring the wine. They would uh, run the celebration. And when things needed to move from one place to the, to the next, they were in charge of that. And Jesus watches as this master of the banquet sips the wine that he's just created. And he doesn't take credit for it. But I believe that the second thing that we see under the surface about who Jesus is and who he came to be is that Jesus came to be the true master of the banquet. And yes, he ultimately serves as the master of the banquet in this wedding, and he's the person who actually brings the wine. They run out of wine and Jesus saves it. He doesn't take the credit for that. But Jesus also came to be the master of the banquet, the Lord of the feast, if you will, at a feast that's still to come. If you flip over, or we'll put it up on the screen, there's a, a passage in Isaiah chapter 25, verses six through eight, that speaks of this feast, this banquet that's to come, where Jesus will be the master of the banquet. And I'll read it. It says this, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. See, Jesus came to be the master of the banquet at a banquet that's still to come, a banquet that will be an incredible banquet with the best wine and the best meats and he will cover the shroud of death. But what must he do to provide the wine at that banquet? What must he do to cover the shroud of death to wipe away every tear? I think that's what he was realizing and seeing in this moment at this wedding at Cana in Galilee. See, Jesus wasn't being disrespectful to his mother. Now, when he says, my hour has not yet come, in John's gospel, there's only five or six times where he says, my hour, and each one of those is specifically speaking about his death. See, Jesus knows that as soon as this miracle happens, the clock begins to tick and his ministry begins and he's now counting down the time until he knows what he must do to provide the wine for that banquet, to wipe away every tear, to cover the shroud of death. And what must he do? He must take the cup of wrath, the cup of justice from God that we deserve, that he must take that cup Tim Keller says it well. He says that in this wedding, in this moment of joy at Cana in Galilee, Jesus takes a cup of sorrow. So that in this world of sorrow, you and I can take his cup of joy. See, Jesus came to be the master of the banquet at a feast that is yet to come. And so the master of the banquet tries this wine and he pulls the bridegroom aside and he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then, excuse me, sorry. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And in this last character introduction, I believe we see the third thing that Jesus is and who he came to be. And that's that Jesus is the bridegroom. He's not the bridegroom at this wedding. It's not some weird switcheroo, but Jesus came to be the bridegroom. 
You see, I think we're comfortable with this imagery of Jesus as the gate, as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is a shepherd. Jesus is our friend. But in order to really fully understand all of who Jesus is, we have to see that Jesus is the bridegroom. He takes that title for himself in Matthew chapter 5 when his disciples are questioned about not fasting. And they say, why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, the friends of the bridegroom don't fast when the bridegroom is with them. And he says, I am the bridegroom. But if Jesus is the bridegroom, there's two questions that arise. One, who's his bride? And number two is, when is the wedding? But this is absolutely phenomenal. Catch this. In this day and age, in the Middle East, in this time, when someone was to get married, what was going to happen is it was a culture of arranged marriages. And so a father would look into a far distant land and he would select a bride suitable for his son. And once he had selected that bride, he would begin to prepare a place at his house for his son and the soon-to-be bride. And it wasn't like today where people get married and they move off to a distant town. No, he would prepare a place on his house. He'd build an addition for his son and his son's bride to live. And so the father would begin to prepare that place. And when the time was right, the son would leave home and he would head to a far distant land. And he would go and he would win the heart of his bride. And once he had done so, he would bring his bride home and there would be a wedding celebration like this one. And then there would be a feast that follows for days and days and they would live happily ever after in the place prepared by the Father. Do you see it? That's exactly what Jesus does. See, God the Father in heaven looks down and he selects a bride suitable for his son, the bridegroom. And he begins to prepare a place in heaven for his son and the soon-to-be bride. And then when the time is right, Jesus leaves his home in heaven and he goes to a far-off distant land. He comes to our world and he shows up here on earth. And he begins to look to win the heart of his bride. But Jesus finds a surprise when he comes to win his bride. He finds that his bride hasn't been loyal, hasn't been noble, hasn't been honorable, but instead his bride has run to other things, has run to other loves, has turned from the love it was created for and run after other loves. Jesus finds that his bride has been an adulterous bride. And we see this played out in the book of Hosea where uh, Hosea marries a woman named Gomer and she leaves him. And she goes off and she runs after, after other things. And she leaves the love that she was created for and, and she goes and she ends up uh, caught in, in slavery, so to speak. And she's in a bad place and Hosea sees his bride who's run away and has left him. And what does he do? He doesn't go to her, he doesn't yell, he doesn't get angry, he doesn't say anything that he, he doesn't say anything shameful. Instead, he goes, and what does he do? He buys her back. She's up for auction. He sees her at her worst. He sees his bride and he pays full price to bring her home. That's exactly what Jesus does. But if Jesus is the bridegroom, who is his bride? And when is the wedding? You see, we're the bride. It's me and it's you. 
It's us collectively, his church. We are the bride that God the Father in heaven looked down at earth and he saw us. And he said, that's one suitable for my son. And he began to prepare a place for me and for you in heaven. And when the time was right, Jesus came to earth to win our hearts. But he found that me and you, like all of mankind, had all like sheep gone astray and we've turned to our own way and we've said thanks but no thanks and we've left and we've run after other things. And we've become entangled in sin and bad decisions and brokenness. But Jesus doesn't go back home. He doesn't give up on us. No, he comes to that auction and he pays full price for our ransom. And that price is his life. And he dies for us to bring us home, to pay our debt, to bring us home to the Father in heaven, where there will be a grand wedding, a wedding for the ages. And following it will be a feast. And Jesus will be the master of that banquet, the Lord of that feast. And it will be a grand celebration with the best meats and the finest wine and the whole town will be there and we'll celebrate that Jesus has washed us clean once and for all. We are his bride. See, in this story, we see Jesus acting in silence as a guest. In John 1, John says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And in this half of John 2, we see Jesus full of grace, filling up the cup of wine saving this couple from embarrassment, ultimately saving us. Next week, we're gonna talk about the truth side of that, and I hope you'll tune in as Tim shares about John chapter two. Because if Jesus has the authority to fill up our cups, he must also have the authority to overturn our tables, which we see him do in John chapter two. But see this this morning, Jesus came to earth for you and for me to win our hearts, to take us home to the Father. And it's not because you pulled the wool over his eyes. It's not because he doesn't know us. No, he sees us even at our worst. But he wants to win our hearts and bring us home to a place that our Father has prepared in advance for us. There's a wedding, a wedding for the ages. And you're invited. We're gonna spend a little time uh, in in prayer and the rails will be open. These curved rails are for you to come and and pray at on your own or if you're looking for someone to pray with, you can pray at these straight rails. But as we do that, I would love for you to spend a little bit of time reflecting on a few of these questions. Number one is this, what is it that you run to outside of Jesus's love? What folly do you keep chasing after as an unfaithful spouse? And number two, did you know that Jesus has bought you back again and again and again and again. It doesn't matter how many times you run to that thing. It doesn't matter how many times you flee from his love. He's after you. I love that song we sang. His goodness is running after us. It's running after me. Do you know that Jesus has bought you back? And the third is this. Will you or have you sipped his cup of wine? his new wine of joy everlasting, of love that never ends, of love that sees us and knows us at our worst 
but yet loves us better than anyone else. Because Jesus sipped the cup of sorrow in that moment of joy. Why? So that here and now in this world of sorrow, we can sip his cup of wine. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thank you for this miracle and uh, all that you are and all that you came to be. Thank you for the way that you've run after us and come and won our hearts. It's in your name we pray, amen.